This is a WTOP original podcast. Hey, welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And today, I know I always say I have the honor and privilege, but man, today I really mean I have the honor and privilege of having as my guest the world-renowned Ray Isles. Ray is the executive wine editor for Food and Wine and the wine and spirits editor for Travel and Leisure, which I have read oodles of his stuff and love it. He writes for Food and Wine's monthly What to Drink Next column, as well as a regular feature article for Food and Wine and Travel and Leisure. Now, he was born in Houston. He holds an MA in creative writing from Boston University and has been a Stegner Fellow and Jones Lecturer in creative writing at Stanford University. His writing on wine and spirits has appeared, as mentioned, in Food and Wine, Travel and Leisure, but also in Departures and Wine and Spirits, The Washington Post, and many other national publications. He has won the International Association of Culinary Professional Award for the Narrative Beverage Writing multiple times, the American Food Journalist Award for Beverage Writing, and the North American Travel Journalist Association Gold Award. He's been nominated three times for a James Beard Award in Beverage Writing. His work has also appeared in the Best American Food Writing Series. Ray has appeared as an expert about wine and beverage topics on national media, such as NBC Today, CNBC's On the Money, and Squawk Box, ABC's The View, CBS This Morning, which, by the way, is appeared this morning, Weekend Today, and radio shows such as The Splendid Table and All Things Considered. He's a frequent speaker at wine and food events around the country. He lives in Brooklyn, New York, with his wife, daughter, a ridiculous cat, and too much wine. <laughs> right. Absolutely true. <laughs> Welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here, particularly on the launch of your, your new book, which is yeah. really, I mean, super impressive. It's, it's called The World in a Wine Glass, An Insider's Guide to Artisanal, Sustainable, Extraordinary Wine, to drink now. What I don't even I don't even want to call this a book. It's a tome. <laughs> it's a tome. It, it, it's it is, a, it's, it's only seven hundred pages. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, and I have to say, I'm, I'm I've I've thumbed through it. I mean, I I have to confess, seven hundred pages was a lot to get through. But I I will say I will start off by saying I absolutely love the um, the dedication. And and if you don't mind, I'm going to read it to anyone who has ever picked up a bottle of wine and thought, I wish I knew more about this. That speaks to everyone. I mean, I don't care if you're kind of a, a seasoned uh, old fart collector like me or a young hipster who's maybe into the orange wine movement. That is so true. I think everybody has picked up a, a bottle of wine and opened it and had that aha moment where they said, wow, i I really wish I knew more about this wine and you've dedicated your book to them. I, I, I think that's just fantastic, but I do have to start off by asking you, you've never written a book before, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Why did you decide to write this book and why now? Yeah. So, the, you know, the thing about this book is uh, I thought about doing a book before. I mean, I've been working at food and wine for 18 years or something like that. And, but I always knew I didn't want to do, 
another wine 101 sort of intro to wine that one there are so many of them out there too there's some very good ones and it's like why why redo something someone's done so well in the past and i knew i didn't want to do a specific focus on a region or something and i'd gotten much more interested over time in farming approaches that, that benefit the planet rather than mess it up <laughs> it's a short version using using non-colorful language um you know so organic sustainability regenerative farming um biodynamics though i there are some aspects of it i find odd there's a lot that i find good about it um and i also you know i also was bothered by this kind of antagonism i guess you'd say between the the natural wine world and the what you'd call a conventional or traditional wine world in that most of the producers that i am particularly fond of in the in the quote-unquote traditional side of wine farm organically or biodynamically don't use you know don't use massive amounts of sulfur um are you know conscientious and and, and make wines that express terroir concerned about life in the soil and it's kind of like well why are why is the antagonism between these two realms rather than let's look at what the real difference is which is between wine that's made artisanally that's made to express place that's wine that's you know um conscientiously farmed and the mass the vast world of kind of industrially produced wine that is you know done in hundred thousand gallon tanks and um you know, fermentations are boosted along by enzymes and you use liquid tannins if you need tannins you use um you know whatever you technique you need to make it a consistent product year in and year out and that to me is that to me is not the wine i'm interested in that's that's wine that's not that dissimilar from coca-cola let's say and and so that seemed to me the real division and i decided i wanted to write a book about all the folks who are on the side of making wine that truly you know is not a corporate product it's not a beverage product but is an expression of place an expression of personal passion in, in some way and that Suddenly, that felt like that was a book I could do, um, and then it just grew and grew and grew and grew because there's actually a really say. large number of <laughs> large number of people out there who are working this way. And I had, you know, the the terrible thing is when you work on a book like this, and I worked on it for you know over three years, I kept finding people I wanted to include, and I kept it, and then I kept including people, and then at a certain point, I my editor was like, "You need to stop," with you know. You, Put the put the brakes on, or you're going to have a ten thousand page book, um, you know. And I a ten thousand page book was not what I wanted to inflict on anyone. <laughs> so, so there's so many people I had to leave out who I really like, actually, too. That's just it. Just is the nature of um, covers and pages. <laughs> a bit like pulling on the thread of a sweater. I mean, once you kind of went down this path, more yeah. and more and more people, I imagine you were exposed to and wanted to write about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it would be recommendations from other producers and so on. You know, I, I mean, I think like Julian Cecil in the Rhone, whose wines I adore, I, I didn't know about when I started the book. It's my job to track the wine world, but there's a lot of wine out there. Um, you know, and his, he, you know, I, I sort of learned about his wines and he was here for the, um, for the Rhone event. And I met him and talked to him and tasted with him and, and it's just brilliant stuff, but it was, it was not on my radar at all when I started. And and unfortunately, some people who were very much on my radar, you know, it happens all the time. They the independent producers who end up selling to a large corporation, and that then, in the context of this book, at least, were no longer kind of part of the, the universe I wanted to to write about. Yeah, and there's a lot of that going on lately. I noticed. There's a lot. I think I think it's it's very tricky with generational change. I mean, you 
you know, especially in the U.S., you don't have that sense of obligation to the family business that that some European farming or viticulture has. Um, and people, and even in Europe, you know, it's hard work making wine. It's hard work making wine. It's hard work making a profit from wine. Some people would prefer to be doctors or lawyers or whatever. And so sometimes um, things sell. And it the other the other tricky thing is, of course, you know, if if there's someone who founds the winery and then there's six siblings and one of them is interested, but they all six own parts of it at a certain point, they may decide now's the time to sell, which I think, for instance, is what happened with Vietti to some degree. Luca Corrado had other family members involved and and I don't think he, Luca wanted to sell, but it it, it worked out that he did um, or that they did. Um, and that's, you know, that can be heartbreaking for the person who is the one family member who's devoted their life to the to the winery um you know so that's that's a complicated situation then unfortunately a couple of cases i I did have to remove producers from the book it's particularly annoying when you've already written them <laughs> it's, you know, it's like well i would i would just say ray that at 700 pages i'm pretty glad that you did remove some of them <laughs> I, got, I i turn i have to say i turned it in and my publisher was like we they they really wanted to keep the price of the book 50 dollars or under and I, mm -hmm. I agree with that because it i wanted it to be a book you could buy, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a splurge, but it's not $120 or something. You, people can go into a bookstore and not feel like they're just making a crazy purchase. As a consequence, when I turned the manuscript, my, my editor was like, you may have to cut a little bit because I wrote, I actually wrote substantially longer than I thought I was writing. I, I knew I was writing a 700-page book, but apparently I wrote an 830-page book. <laughs> So, well, every page is which, accessible. I can tell you that. Thank um, you very much. That's yeah. what I was aiming for. Um, I, wa I want to go back and touch on something that you would just, you know, we were talking about intergenerational and 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 some of the these things. I I am, I would, if you don't mind, and I think the book does a beautiful job of this, by the way, talk just a little bit more about the misconceptions I think that a lot of people have with respect to, and particularly the younger generation, right? They're very conscientious about what's going in my body. How is this wine made? Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of a misconception about uh, traditional winemaking versus, you know, the natural wine movement or organic mm -hmm. or regenerative, which by the way, we've been talking a lot about on the podcast lately, particularly right. the concept of regenerative farming. Um, so if, if you could just, and I know the book does a, an excellent job of this, but can you just maybe touch on sort of the misconception about traditional farming practices that people may not realize? Yeah. So there's a, there's a number of things the, explaining all this in a coherent way to a consumer is, is tough because one, it's, it is somewhat complicated Two, every country has its own rules, which, which doesn't help the equation much, you know? So, and one of the, you know, one of the classic and most problematic ones is that, you know, to get a USDA organic seal on your wine, you have to have a almost zero use of sulfur. And a lot of people who work, who farm organically or biodynamically um, still may use, you know, an amount of sulfur at bottling just to keep the wine stable. And they're somehow then not allowed to have USDA organic. Whereas in Europe, you can, I think it's, you know, I think it, U.S. it's under ten parts per million added sulfites, and Europe is hundred parts per million. You know, it's different for white and red, but around around there. And so, there are complicated things like that. Then there's simply the complicated question of you know what is sustainable, what is organic, what is biodynamic, and what is regenerative. And these terms get bandied around. And you know, I think sustainability, in a nutshell, 
aims towards sustaining, meaning that you try and keep your farm alive in a way that is not damaging to its to general life around it. Um, you also try and be sustainable in the context of how your workers are treated. You also need to be sustainable economically, because if you go out of business, none of it matters the slightest. It it rolls in some stuff that's outside the farming question, is a way to put it. It's, fairly, it's a term that's fairly easy to use can kind of throw around and say, oh, I'm sustainable. I'm very sustainable. You know, I, I got up this morning and I was sustainable. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's, you do a little, there is a little buyer beware than that. Organics, I mean, essentially organics is treating problems in the vineyard with non-systemic chemicals or non-systemic treatments. So you're, rather than use, you know, uh, systemic pesticides, which which are drawn up into the plant and also to go into the rest of the sort of ecosystem, you're using something. Um, you're using copper sulfate, or you're using very uh, you know, Bordeaux blend, or you're using um, sulfur to prevent um, uh, mold issues. So, in a sense, it's it's using organic products to treat problems that would normally be treated with um, systemic and chemical products. Now, sulfur is a chemical; um, it's a naturally occurring chemical, but it's still you know it's an element. So. There are some problems with that too, particularly with copper, which is a which is a heavy metal and does kind of get into the soil. So, is organic the perfect approach? Probably not. On the other hand, is it better than spraying your vineyard with a ton of pesticides <laughs> that that will end up in the water, you know, and and in the soil for a long time? Probably so. I was walking with Steve Mathiason, who's a wonderful grower in in Napa Valley, and we were looking at his vineyard, which is farmed, you know, organically and and sustainably and pretty much everything like that regeneratively and the vineyard immediately adjacent to it. And, you know, Steve's looks full of life. You know, the soil is alive. It's not compacted. The, you know, there's cover crop, there's vines and, and the vineyard next to it is like, you know, or less kind of like, it's like a runway in an airport. It's, you know, it's, and, or it's just sort of the gray, soil was gray. It's all pounded down. There's nothing growing in it other than the vines. And he looked at it and he said, I guess the difference is that this one looks like a living vineyard. And this one looks like Mordor, um, you know. <laughs> a Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> analogy. Yeah. And then, you know, and then biodynamics is its own uh, interesting realm, I guess is the way to put it. You know, there are, there are the things about it that I, love which is treating the entire vineyard and as a and, and everything else on the farm as an ecosystem as its own ecosystem um and and so realizing that it's all interrelated and at the same time you've got rudolf steiner's slightly wacky opinions about how astral forces are channeled through cow horns and 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 whatnot but i th there was a great quote the book is full of quotes because the book is full of interviews and there's a great quote from uh olivia Zindhumbrecht, who's both farms biodynamically, but as a master of wine and also master's degree in viticulture and enology. I mean, the guy's scientifically trained and extraordinarily smart. And he said, when he started working biodynamically, he made test, basically test cases of manure that was biodynamic manure, or not manure, but a compost that was biodynamic compost that wasn't. Vine one acre of vineyard farm biodynamically, one that wasn't. And what he said, which I thought was really smart, is that for him, he could, he, I mean, he could measure a difference like in the, in the compost that was biodynamic in terms of the microbial life. It was massively higher. And he said, you know, as a scientist, if I can measure that there's a difference, I don't have to know why necessarily to know that there's a difference. I don't have to understand the process completely to know that there's a measurable difference, um, which is true. You know, it's why science continues to be something we do because we try and figure out why things work the way they do. I mean, 
still haven't figured out quite the origins of the universe. And apparently we haven't quite figured out why biodynamics works the way it does. But that's what he's that's when he said he switched because he there was a there was a distinct difference between the two. And so that's that to me was a kind of a great quote. And then regenerative farming, which is, you know, the the short shorthand for it is biodynamics without the woo-woo, you know. <laughs> and and it's it's a combo platter of kind of working I mean, one is is promoting soil life, microbial life in the soil. One is um, working in that kind of broad sustainability of treating workers correctly, treating animals correctly, you know, uh, trying to utilize, you know, lower your carbon um, footprint. And and at the same time, also borrows from biodynamics with the idea of treating the, the place you're working or farming as a whole ecosystem. But none of this is on the label in any way that anyone can make any sense of, you know, in bottles of wine. And so I thought it was worth at least trying to explain it in the book. And and really the book is aimed certainly to people in the trade, but really it's also, I mean, it's like you said, it's anybody who's ever picked up a bottle of wine and wish they knew more about it. It's really aimed at who I was when I was first getting into wine, which was, which was not someone who knew that much about wine and only that I liked it and I kind of wanted to know more about it. Um, so it's not a super technical book in a sense. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on, on that in a, on a second, because I do want to circle back to that. But one of the things that you do so beautifully in this book, in my opinion, is that, and I've, I've been at wine tastings and dinner parties, particularly a younger generation will say, well, you know, I only drink organic or this, that, and the other. And what, one of the things that I think you've done a great job of explaining is that, Hey, listen, some, if not most of the traditional wineries that we know and love do their damnedest to be sustainable or organic. And just because they may not have that label on the bottle doesn't mean that they don't literally care very, very deeply about the land that they're farming and the the wine they're making. And I think you make that point beautifully in this book. Thanks. Yeah. One of my, actually another favorite quote there, I got a lot of, one thing I got by doing this book was a lot of really cool quotes, <laughs> but there's a wonderful moment where Mark Perrin said, you know, they've been, they've been organic for years and years and years. And, and, and his, his father said at one point, you know, well, there are the people who go to church because they believe, and there are the people who go to church and tell everybody that they go to church. <laughs> and, and he said, we basically have been organic because we believe it's the right way to work. It's, but we don't advertise it on our bottles and we've never really promoted it. Um, and I thought that was, you know, was a nice way of bringing it down to, down to earth um, in a sense. No pun intended. Yes. No pun intended. <laughs> Zero puns intended. <laughs> you know, that's interesting because I adore Bocastel. And, and a matter of fact, yeah. it was a 1981 uh, Bocastel that I had my aha moment mm-hmm. for, for wine. And that's the, yeah. the bottle of wine that got me into wine. And I never knew they were organic until just now. Yeah, they never. It's never been something they've they've mentioned really. And I, I know I I knew that they were because I had talked to Mark before, unrelated to the book. And so then when I interviewed him again, I wanted to to find out what the story was, and that was that that quote came out of that. But uh, that's a good wine for your aha moment for wine. That's uh, right. Focusell is also my um my my greatest triumph in blind tasting was was with Bocastel. Um I'm not. I'm not a Raj Bar. I'm not a you know crazy, crazily talented blind taster. But I was at a event at our big food and wine Aspen thing, and a bunch of sommeliers sitting around after hours, and someone brought a bottle of wine, and everybody's trying to figure out what it is. I was like, sure as hell's 
smells like Bocastel to me. And it was in fact when the Bocastel had a little more breadth than it, it does these days. And but it wasn't standard the standard Bocastel. So I was like, I think it's homage to Jacques Perrin, and I think it's probably around ninety eight. And I said that. And I was like, I got it. And and around a bunch of master songs, which made me feel very impressive indeed. <laughs> Actually it's and I it's amazing. I probably got the yeah, and I probably got the variety wrong in the next one. So you know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, you it comes and goes. Yeah. Well, by the way, that the '98 uh, homage by Bocastel, one of the probably one of the top ten wines I've ever had. So that's it's just a, it's a, a absolutely stunning stellar wine. wine. Yeah, it really is. So I am going to circle back now to the question I want to ask you about: What was the wine that did it for you? What was your aha moment? Yeah, I well, that's that's easy because I, I I've even written about it. Um, it was a 1984 Diamond Creek Volcanic Hill Cabernet Sauvignon, oh, yeah. and I had it around 1989. My girlfriend's father at the time ordered in a restaurant we were having dinner at, and I just, I, I, I was, I wasn't even that interested in wine at the time, but I was kind of a little bit vaguely interested, and I had this glass of wine in front of me, and I took about four sips, and I was like, "Holy crap, what is this? You know, this is amazing." And which I and then I promptly like was unable to concentrate on either my girlfriend or her father, which probably was didn't help the relationship any. But I just remember being blown away by how good the wine was, and then it that sort of set off a quest to find more wines like that that were cheaper because <laughs> wow. I could I couldn't afford anything at the time. But what a wonderful yeah. wine though to send you on that journey. Uh, yeah, you know Boots and Al uh, Bronstein, who yeah. you know who made those wines were just spectacular. As a matter of fact, I remember having a, a volcanic hill and saying, uh, boy, I, I, I don't know how they're doing it, but I'm glad they're doing it. And I went out and bought a six pack uh, yeah. for my son that was born in 95. So I still have three bottles of the 95 left. So if you ever make it over to oh, Park wow. City. I will um, be knocking on your door. <laughs> I, do, I double dog dare you. Now, another yeah. interesting thing about your book is, you know, and there's this uh, kind of a, a funny little saying, uh, how do you uh, make a small fortune in tech? You start with a large fortune and buy a winery. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've noticed that, that absent from your your book, you know, are some sort of these moneyed people that just mm -hmm. throw money at a vineyard, right? They just, oh, I, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, I like that you kind of kept the people in this book. Uh, how should I say this? Maybe organic themselves. Yeah, I, I wanted. I really wanted to concentrate. On well, I wanted to get away from absentee ownership, which I think I think it helps a lot to have. I mean, it's almost like a restaurant. If the chef, you know, it's a famous chef. If they're a famous chef, they have twenty five restaurants. They're never in the restaurant. You're not really getting that chef's cooking. Whereas, I mean, my example for that is Le Bernardin in New York, where Eric Repair, who's quite famous, is always in that restaurant, and that's one reason why it's such a great restaurant. And I I think with wine, similarly, living on the property and being personally invested in the in the vines and so on makes a big difference. Also in this book, I I wanted to concentrate on wines that were at least relatively affordable. There's ve there's very little in the book that's over a hundred dollars. There's a lot that's around 25, 30, 40 bucks. Um, you know, the world doesn't need five more pages from me and on Romani Conti, even though yes, it's, it's, it's farmed incredibly conscientiously. It's organic. It's clearly a brilliant, wine and made brilliantly, but the first, the cheapest bottle is 3000 bucks and it's had hundreds of pages written about it. So I'd rather, you know, going back, like write about the Focarets in Chablis or, or write about, you know, someone in Jura just to, to bring that, give them some awareness in the world. And, and also I, those are the stories that are always exciting to me, you know, 
a personal story from someone who really, you know, um, sometimes they're sad. I mean, I, I domain rot and, and Jura, I mean, they've been organic and biodynamic since they started. And one reason that Francoise Rutt said she, you know, and maybe Rate, I don't know if that is pronounced, but one reason she said that they work that way is because her father spent his entire life growing grapes and spraying with chemicals and he ended up with cancer um, throughout his body. And they never wore, you know, basically it was a 1950s. They didn't wear protective masks or anything like that. They just kind of did what the guy selling the chemicals told him to do. And he died. Um, and she said, since then, she just said, I'm never doing that in my vineyard to my workers. You know, they're, they're not going to be exposed to, to stuff that I don't know what's going to do to them. And, uh, so there's stories like that in there too, that are, I think are, to me, were quite affecting. What are, what are some of the more surprising stories? I mean, other than that very touching story, yeah. um, I'm, I'm sure that you probably have hundreds well, of surprising so stories. Good, I mean, that's, that's one reason why I, I, I really, I mean, it's from just from a writing point of view, I really love the people behind wine. I mean, from a human point of view and a writing point of view, I, I mean, I'm interested in the wine itself, but I'm really interested in the people who made it too. And I think that's, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about terroir and we talk a lot about soil and a lot about exposure if we're in the wine business. But I think sometimes the human element gets a little bit ignored in that conversation. And the truth is wine is a massive series of decisions, no matter how hands off you are and personal approach and the personal vision matters. And that comes out in people's stories. And some of them are very funny stories. I mean, I, you know, I was talking to Fauzi Issa of, of Domaine de Tourelle and, you know, he said he constantly, um, it's in Lebanon in Bicot Valley. And he said, you know, the nature of, of making wine in Lebanon is that people always, no matter what your wine is like, they always ask you, oh my God, how do you make wine in Lebanon? This is, you know, it's, what about the civil war? And it's like the civil war ended 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, stop asking about the civil war. And, but he, he told this funny story. He was in Norway, I guess, with his, his distributor there. And the guy said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Lebanon is so difficult. It's like, I think it was after the explosion happened in the port there. It's like, I just, you know, I just don't know how you can do it, how you carry on. And he's like, and Fallacy said, well, look, we have, we have sunny days, 265 days a year, maybe 300. We have beautiful climate. We have the best fruit in the world. We have amazing food. We have wonderful wine. We have terrific wine. You live in Norway. Six months out of the year, you're standing around in the dark all day long. You, well, your life is hell compared to mine. <laughs> and I thought that was a pretty good comment. You know, um, it's like you're completely screwed. You, you live in the dark and the cold for six months. <laughs> um, you, you've got peace, but big deal. <laughs> so, and his wines are great, by the way. They yeah, really they're are great, and they're and they're very they're affordable, which is which is yeah. remarkable. Yeah. yeah, there's wines from uh, you know pretty much all over the planet these days. Uh, and is there any particular? region or story that you know that surprised you yeah i think you know and it goes back a ways because this is some of this research was done you know over time for food and wine as well you know and i kind of re-upped it for for the book the jura which i had not been to before and i, I went to right as i was starting work on the book it's a remarkable wine region that just doesn't get much i mean it gets a little bit of of kind of hipster wine attention, I guess you'd say, but it doesn't get much attention outside in the in the mass wine buying public. And it's such a beautiful part of France and it makes such good wines. And it makes, I mean, outside of the, you know, the sort of um, the traditional Jura wines that are, that are oxidative and, and so on, it makes really great Chardonnay and Pinot Noir for a fraction of the price of 
Burgundy, which is literally an hour down the road. And Burgundy prices have gone bonkers. And, you know, I'm, and I, you can get a stellar bottle of Jura Chardonnay for, you know, this, the equivalent of Premier Cru Burgundy for a much, much less money. I mean, that was certainly interesting. And I think, you know, also around, I think just around the world, there were so many vintners who were so invested in what's happening with climate, invested in the way they were farming, that many, many more than I ever realized. And I, I make the point in the book, you know, wine, wine in a way has the freedom to push the boundaries a little bit on on farming this way because it's not a stable. It's not, you know, it's not, you're not farming 100,000 acres of wheat um, and you're not farming for massive production for the kind of wines I'm writing about. So you have the opportunity to 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 push forward toward things like biodynamics or organics a little a little more uh, with fewer restrictions in a sense, economic restrictions, maybe is the way to put it. Um, you know, wine, I, you know, as I say, wine's not a staple. No one, no one dies if they don't get wine, whereas, uh, I mean, except you and me, probably. <laughs> but, you know, but that's not true of things like rice. You know, if there's not enough rice, people die. Um, what's, what's one of the biggest misconceptions you think you uh, tried to clear up about wine in this book? I think one huge misconception is that or, that organic wine or, or sustainable or, or biodynamic take your pick tastes different. Somehow it's like tastes biodynamic. And the truth is it's not, it's not a taste consideration. You know, you, there's great tasting wine that is made with conventional farming. There's great tasting wine. You know, it's, it's really a philosophical and ecological question about how you farm. Um, people tend to assume that organic, anybody farming organically, their wines are going to be weird. You know, or sort of like, you know, this sort of old unwashed hippie approach to to, to things, um, and it's it's simply not true. You know, um, and and that's that's a misconception. And I think the other misconception, and this is not necessarily true in the trade, but it's true out there in the world, is that, you know, is that really good wine has to cost a lot, and and that's not true. There's there's beautiful wines. I mean, I, I say in the book, you could spend your entire life drinking wines under a hundred dollars and probably under fifty dollars and drink spectacularly good wine for years and years and years and never run out. You know, you don't, you don't have to drink a $500 bottle of wine to drink great wine. And I think sometimes the public, you know, sort of sees the fancy things and thinks, um, you know, but I mean, I can drink okay wine, but that's it, you know? And I, I think that with a little hunting, I've always felt this, it's, a, it's what I do for food and wine in large measure is hunt for extraordinary things that bat way above what they cost. It's my, my job, <laughs> weirdly, you know? Um, but, uh, that's, that's a misconception that I run into a lot. And then the other, I mean, the, the other one is simply that, you know, the misconception that, you know, you have to know all this technical stuff to, to love wine and you don't, you have to, I mean, a little, a little bit of wine knowledge goes a really long way in terms of loving wine. And I do think that knowing a little bit more in increases your pleasure in terms of drinking. I mean, it, it's having some knowledge, having, knowing who made it, why they made it, how they made it makes a big difference, but you don't have to know like what the titratable acidity level was. <laughs> it's, sorry. It's just leave it to the winemakers. They need to know. <laughs> no matter how long I or anyone has been, you know, sort of drinking wine and, you know, I've been writing about wine professionally for over two decades. I am always pleasantly surprised and, and reminded of your point that you don't have to spend a lot of money to just really enjoy wine. It happened to me last week. I, Somebody poured a glass of wine. I took a sip and kind of went, what is in this glass? And was really pleasantly surprised to find out it was 
you know, a twenty-five dollar bottle of wine, and just went, yeah. you know, wow, that's that that's another aha moment that yeah, uh, I mean, kind of snuck up on me. Absolutely, I opened a bottle of of um, of Pigau, the the Coteron, the Maclara Coteron. Oh, lovely wine! Pigau Pigau Chateauneuf is one of my favorite wines. I, I just love her approach to Chateauneuf. Yeah, it's just a terrific bottle of wine. But the, the Coteron is it, it's also a terrific bottle of wine. It's twenty bucks. It's you know. I guarantee Ray, don't tell everybody our Hang secret. On, don't tell there won't be any more left. Yeah, okay, exactly. I can edit this out. <laughs> yeah, actually, sorry, everybody. Just forget that. It's really, you know, you don't want to buy, buy that wine. Please don't. Oh, yeah. More for us. <laughs> well, listen, I, I know that you're running short on time, and I can't thank you enough for sneaking me in today. This is I know you've oh, got absolutely. a super busy day. Uh, I want to remind people, again, this wonderful book, it's called the world in a wine glass an insider's guide to artisanal sustainable extraordinary wines to drink now uh ray who's who's the publisher on this um scribner is the publisher Scri- so scribner and which, running which puts about... me a good company because they've got hemingway and stephen king and me yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm i'm up there you know i'm gonna sell nearly as much i'm sure they could have just stopped <laughs> after you <laughs> yeah but and, and, no it's it's really it's pretty exciting to have it out, and it's as they say available everywhere books are sold. Um. <laughs> and and a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful holiday gift, particularly for the wine lover in your life if you don't know what to get them. And and please do not buy the wine lover in your life a bottle of wine. Buy them this book because uh, <laughs> this this book will be around for a long time and will be enjoyed for many years. Ray. Thank you so, so very much for taking the time to to uh, chat Thank with you. me today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well, 